Hello, and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I'll be finishing up my look at the shadow over Innsmouth, specifically looking at chapters four and five of this uh, quite important story, uh, one of Lovecraft's most important. Um, so the first three chapters give us essentially a series of accounts of Innsmouth from different points of view, including the narrator's own point of view through his walking tour. So we get uh, a moment where he gets to play Lovecraft and, and wander about a city and comment on its architecture and comment on its people and its decline and all that. We also get um, various eyewitness testimony from like a grocer from Arkham who works uh, in Innsmouth um, because he has to, since his job relocated him there. He worked for a grocery chain and had to go there. Um, and from this old man, Zadok Allen, who gives the most complete description of the history, him being quite old, uh, with a lot of personal memories of what happens. He gives the most detailed description of the, the changes that happened in his mouth after the return of Obeded, by, by Obeded March uh, from the South Seas, the religion he brings in, the, the reformation of Innsmouth. I think that'd be an interesting... Um, title for an article exploring more detail the, the religious aspects of, of Lovecraft's mythology, uh, the Innsmouth Reformation. Um, but that's essentially what happens there, where a whole new religion is, is a, well, it's not new in the sense, it's, it's very old, but it's, it's, it's new on the shores of the Americas, it seems. Um, and we learn more about the Innsmouth look. Uh, what's the other account? Oh, the one we get very early in chapter one is the the account from a Newburyport uh, work, transit worker who is able to tell some of the background history. And, and a lot of these stories overlap and, and confirm certain details, but each one has their own kind of unique perspective on, on the town. So that's a, a big chunk of the story. And in fact, that is kind of complete. There's a completeness to the first three chapters, which... Uh, um, you know, because chapter four and five each do a very specific thing, but neither of them add too much to the mythology here. So if you're interested in the mythology, the mythos, the 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 kind of the thematic elements, they're kind of mostly covered in chapters one, two, three, um, with one kind of proviso, and that's we're going to see in chapter four or chapter five. Now, chapter four, really, chapter four and five are 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 distinct. As well, chapter four basically covers the escape of the narrator from Innsmouth. It's, it's basically an action scene. It's quite creepy. It's it's really well done. It's there's a lot of uh, kind of just outright terror for the reader and for the you can experience what the narrator went through as he was forced to uh, flee this town. How he gets stuck there has to stay the night, begins being tormented by the local residents and chased, uh, finally uh, left kind of on a cliffhanger at the end of chapter, at the, at the end of chapter four. Um, but he escapes, and we learn later on that essentially the people of Innsmouth didn't want to kill him because they see him as one of their own, and that's what's revealed in chapter five. Chapter five kind of serves almost as an, as an epilogue because uh, the events that we read about at the very first page of the story about the federal government attacking Innsmouth, destroying the town, relocating the people into even concentration camps, arresting a great many of them. That happens after our narrator returns from this day trip to Innsmouth and he 
reports on what he what's there and basically tells the authorities to intervene. They do destroy the town. Um, but much of chapter five then takes us farther into the future of our narrator, uh, where he realizes that, in fact, he learns more about his past. He learns why he was so attracted to this Tierra, which I think it appears as on some like artwork. It appeared he saw a, a version of this in Newburyport. He saw others in Innsmouth, so he's very tr like drawn by it. He finds out why. He finds out that he is in fact uh, a relative of the Marshes. In fact, we know the detailed genealogy already if you re listen carefully to Zadok Allen's story, where he wrote, "Quote: uh, He had three children by her." This is his new wife, the one that he kept hidden, probably because she was a deep one. Um, had three children by her, two has disappeared young, but one gals looked as anyone else was educated in Europe. So one of the child, the one that looked most normal, I guess, is sent out in the world. This is, reminds me a lot of Dunwich, where uh, the Watley line had like it's normal people and it's, it's less normal people, I guess. It's a more debased offspring and they would stay in Dunwich the more I guess normal less debased to use I think that's the language that's actually used in the Dunwich horror they are sent to sent to uh, like Harvard uh, or Mr. Katonic to study um, but anyways that's what happens to this girl and, and then she eventually uh, marries the ancestor of, of our narrator so that's all revealed in chapter five. Chapter five is really uh, the coming realization over the following months that this guy's a deep one. And then his embrace of this fate, he decides not to resist it. So all his resistance in chapter four is turned on his head as he just decides to totally embrace this transformation he's under and embrace his heritage um, and not run from it, um, which is on some level an interesting commentary by Lovecraft on on somewhat his attitude on civilization. He, he thinks civilization is, is sort of something we can't escape, that we're sort of bound to uh, by birth. Uh, this is part of his racialist theory and his theory of civilization and history, um, that you really can't escape this, this legacy of the past, whether it's the national uh, or cultural foundations that we're born into or in this more specific case, just the, the family line we're in. And we've seen other characters who have been, who realize something about their family's past and embrace it, like Rats on the Wall is maybe the most uh, clear example, but you also see it at least hinted at very strongly in the lurking fear. Um, you see characters in the Dunwich Horror who can't escape their family legacy either, like uh, Wilbur Watley. Even old wizard lot, it seems, was kind of stuck with his family heritage. So, uh, case of Charles Dexter Ward has this as well. This is a recurring theme for for Lovecraft, but um, in in this sense, this theme is something we've seen a lot, and it's not, you know, it's not particularly new, but it's very effective in this particular story. I think it's it's quite quite a thing to watch this this narrator slowly, day by day, embrace his who he is all right let's let's see what's in here um well chapter four i, I don't actually don't want to say too much about it because it is just this long escape from Innsmouth. it's a pretty long chapter i think it's the longest in the entire story coming in at almost 20 pages maybe even over 20 pages so it's a pretty lengthy 
part of it. it it's the most memorable. It's, 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 it's often what people remember most about the, the story is this very tense escape. So it's not boring uh, in terms of the imagination. It's just not thematically the richest part of the story. Um, um, it does foreshadow a lot, perhaps. Um, I guess the mystery is like, what are they after? And of course, our narrator heard a story before of someone staying at this the hotel he ends up staying at, the Gilman Hotel, who is tormented by the visitors, right? And other people go mad, people who vanished. He, you know, he's heard these stories before from, from some of the, the people he's talked to. So he has good reason to fear. He just doesn't know. He has no reason to know that he's... Um, He's tied to the deep ones, at least not consciously yet. The clues are there, especially with the tiara and his attitude towards the tiara. Um, so anyways, his original plan was just to leave that day. He, was, he went in the morning, was going to hang out in Innsmouth for like an afternoon, uh, then come back on the last bus to Arkham. That was the plan, and he actually gets on the bus. But there's a breakdown of the bus, and there's just a few other passengers on there. Uh, Sergeant is the, still the driver, the same guy. Um, and, you know, the, the bus is broken. So you could suggest, you could think maybe there's sabotage involved, which probably is likely because it seems people wanted him to stay in town. But he gets stuck. So he goes to, to eat a very, very disgusting-sounding dinner. Um, quote, I was forced to patronize the restaurant I had shunned before. A stooped, narrow-headed man with staring, unwinking eyes and a flat-nosed wench with unbelievably thick, clumsy hands being in attendance. The service was all of the counter type and relieved me to find that much was evidently served from cans and packages. End quote. Well, I guess why that relieves him is because so much of the output, economic output of the town of Innsmouth is, is fish. And I think he's disgusted by the smell of fish because um, that's what's kind of overbearing throughout the whole story is this smell of this rancid smell of the fish in the air. Um, so he ends up just having a bowl of soup with some crackers and then heads back to the Gilman Hotel where he's going to have to stay for the night. Um, now, you get this, you know, much of this chapter involves him just in his room hearing people jiggling at the door and then him finally realizing that they're out to get him. At least his impression is that they're out to get him. And then he has to, to flee. And he has to flee through the window and, and he's trying to climb up, you know, Sorry, he's able to climb down from uh, his window, down to the floor, down to the ground floor from the outside. But there's some really great moments in the, you know, before his escape, um, and some really great visuals. Um, for instance, he, you know, he starts to realize that these people don't speak like a normal language. The sounds he experiences uh, while barricading himself inside of his hotel room. Quote, I must, I saw, trust to such makeshift barriers to shield me till I could get out of the window and onto the roof of the Payne Street block. But even in this acute moment, my chief horror was something apart from the immediate weakness of my defenses. I was shuddering, not because not one of my pursuers, despite some heavy pantings, gruntings, and subdued barkings at odd intervals, was uttering an unmuffled or intelligible vocal sound. So yeah, he, he gets to the roof first. So he actually climbs up to the roof to... Um, to escape, and this gives us a great uh, visual of the whole town of Innsmouth from from the top of one of these buildings. The line specifically: "I looked over the squalid sea of roofs below me," uh, which is 
really nice because, of course, the sea plays such a prominent role in the story. And then you have this sea of roofs. Again, this sense of it's a very, very urban environment, not like the typical New England town with the detached buildings uh, that we see in places maybe like Kingsport or, or Providence or some of the other places we go. Instead, it's just house after house. It's a sea of houses, mostly deserted, mostly abandoned because the population of Innsmouth has, so, um, has crashed so significantly. So anyways, once he escapes the hotel, he sees, he's amazed to see just how many bodies. He doesn't get a good look at them until the very end of the chapter. We don't get a really good visual of them until the end of the chapter. They just seem to be strange bodies that are uh, pouring out of the Gilman Hotel to begin his pursuit. And then we get this kind of second uh, tour of the town and the streets. And, and again, you want to pull out your map like we did in the, you know, in chapter, I think it's, is it chapter two? Yeah, in chapter two, you want to pull out your map of Innsmouth, kind of follow as he goes around. You want to do that again for here because you're going to see him flee the, the town following different streets. Um, it's not till um, the end, though, that he gets a good look at who these creatures really are. Um, and here's how they're described. And yet I saw them in a limitless stream, flopping, hopping, croaking, bleeding, surging in humanly through the spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant, sarabande, a fantastic nightmare. And some of them had tall tiaras of that nameless whitish gold metal. And some were strangely robed. And one who led the way was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and stripped trousers and had a man's felt hat perched on the shapeless thing that answered for a head. I think their prominent color was grayish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their back were scary, scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed, and the sides of their necks were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed. They hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs and sometimes on flag church basement has so fiercely reminded me of. Their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them, and certainly my momentary glimpse could have shown only the least fraction. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit of fainting, the first I've ever had. So the chapter ends with him fainting um, after being pursued by these um, these deep ones. Let's just call them the deep ones. I think they finally do get their name in the final chapter of the, of the story. So um, what to say here? Oh, there's, there's something uh, in the history of Innsmouth that explains this population uh, question that our narrator has. And it's the town only seems to have a few hundred people left right um so where are these masses of, of creatures uh what's their origin well the explanation that the outside world gives is that there was a plague in Innsmouth. that's one of the first things we're told about the town's history in fact is that they had a a plague in the, i think it was like the 1840s which is right of course right around the time that obed marsh returned and started this tradition so this is when that kind of process of of conversion to deep ones begins through these worshipers and their sacrifices and their rituals and everything they they involved in so it's not that the people aren't there they're just uh, been converted they've been just transformed into these um, but there seems to be different stages right there's the people with just the Innsmouth look there's still the people that are normal uh, maybe just beginning their conversion there's the kind of the more uh, mixed much more miscegenated if you will kind of uh, ones and then there's those that are the fully transformed deep ones right 
Well, of course, they have, they have they've already achieved their promise of immortality. Um, so that's chapter four. Again, it, there's a lot of great details here of just the escape from from the Gilman Hotel and the flight away from the, the creatures and the, the mob that seems to be chasing him down. But it ends with him fainting. He does. He's not killed. He wakes up um, and he doesn't see any evidence of the pursuit. He's, you know, it's, it's the next day. He, he wakes up the next morning and he doesn't even really fully understand the reality of what he went through. You, uh, we get uh, Lovecraft writing, the reality of what I had been through was highly uncertain in my mind, but I felt that something hideous lay in the background. I must get away from that evil shadowed Innsmouth. And accordingly, I began to test my cramped, wearied powers of locomo locomotion. Um, so he gets back. He's eventually able to get back to Arkham. He, he, he has to take another road to another town. He doesn't go back to Innsmouth at all to take the bus. He finds another town that he can walk to, and from there he takes a train to, to Arkham. At this point, he gives up. He abandons the whole reason he was in New England, which was to pursue this antiquarian research. Again, a very, very similar to the kind of stuff Lovecraft would do all the time. Go to his, like, his maternal family's ancestral home. He'd go to these different towns and observe them. And if you know from his letters, he saw these towns changing, um, some changing less than others, but certainly he thought Providence was changing in ways that weren't fully wholesome in his view. Um, so the response to that, if you're, you know, I guess, now Lovecraft doesn't do this. He continues with walking tours. But you're thinking, you know, from having read all these stories, what's the proper response to this realization? It's to stop digging, right? He, and he, finally, we have a character who kind of does the right thing, um, who says, I'm just going to stop thinking about this stuff. I'm going to stop pursuing it. The difference here is, of course, he's got this more psychological internal uh, drive that, that's really biological almost uh, because it's rooted in his ancestry and rooted in his ultimate destiny. So he can't escape it, even though he does seemingly try to put an end to it, right? In fact, he pursues uh, the actual destruction of, of the town. We're told that he's the one who, you know, contacts the police. Um, quote, I caught the night train at Arkham and the next day talked long and earnestly with government officials there. I process, a process I later repeated in Boston. With the main result of these colloquies, the public is now familiar. And I wish for normality's sake there was nothing more to t tell, end quote. So he initiated this attack. So that could be the end of the story, but it's not because we get uh, a genealogical um, exploration, something Lovecraft loves to do for himself. And he, he gives, he's done this before. He, I think the best example of a story in which the genealogy generation by generation really plays a role is, well, there's a couple, there's a couple stories. The Shunt House is one, and I would say uh, Arthur German. Um, the, that story, even more so, it's very important, like each member of the family, what happened to them. So anyways, he's kind of moving on with his life, and he's, um, and he's talking with a curator of the Historical Society, um, Mr. E. Lampin Peabody. This is an Arkham. Um, and Peabody... Thinking the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem is where I, I researched much of my dissertation. But anyways, um, he tells this curator that he is the grandson of Eliza Orne, 
of Arkham, and this piques her, and this begins this kind of investigation into the the genealogy of the of his family, um, and so the genealogy uh, is Obadad Marsh, right? Again, he's the one who kind of initiates everything, initiates this transformation in Arkham. Um, married, it's his second wife. Marries this fish thing called Fithiella, um, and in a dream later on, he actually meets this great-great-grandmother, right? So his great-grandmother, our narrator's great-grandmother, is, is, is Alice Marsh. And that's the one kid of Obed Marsh who's able to go out and be educated in, in Europe and then returns to New England, right? So his grandmother is Eliza Orne, uh, who was the only child of this Alice Marsh. Um, John Marsh Orne is his, his grandfather. No, great-grandfather. Um, his mother is then Mary Williamson. Uh, after that, um, so anyway, Eliza Orne has these three kids, right? So it's Mary Williamson, Douglas Orne, and Walter Williamson. And Mary Williamson is the mother of our narrator, Robert Olmsted. At least that's the name Lovecraft gives in his notes. The name is never really provided in the story. So that's the rough genealogy that he's, he's uh, able to dig out. And the missing pieces is this Innsmouth connection, right? This connection to Obed Marsh, that Obed Marsh is actually his great, great, great uh, grandfather. Um, and this is all sort of revealed through this, uh, this curator Peabody. He's able to kind of figure this out. He says, you even look like, uh, um, like the Marsh family, you, know, you have these Marsh eyes or whatever. So anyways, this is all pretty uh, freaky, but he decides to return to Toledo. He leaves New England and, as he says, recovers from his ordeal. Um, so that's when he digs up some more of his family history, kind of pieces together this genealogy, as I've been ta talking about it, uh, going over letters and, and pictures and kind of bid, you know, building up this orange side of his family. Now, I'm not one to want to kind of psychologize or to do too much psychological analysis of Lovecraft, but we know that Lovecraft had like these two sides in his family genealogy. The one he was more proud of, the Philp side and the, the Lovecraft side was a little bit shadier, a little bit sketchier, right? Um, and of course, you know, his dad died probably of a venereal disease and, you know, it's this maybe contributed to some of his nervous breakdowns, the reasons he couldn't finish school as a kid and all these other things. So the, the idea that one side of your family is kind of carrying a curse is, of course, something he's explored before. We've talked about this in many other stories, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's explored again here anyways. Um, and, I, and I think this is a great example of where you really do see Lovecraft uh, kind of exploring this anxiety over this element of his own family history. Um, there's all kinds of weird uh, aspects in the family history as well, especially of like his parents' generation. So, um, like, uh, like Walter Williamson, his uncle, was um, sent to a sanatorium, sent to basically a, a madhouse. And I guess in that draft, uh, he had a slightly different outcome. These are all from Lovecraft's notes, and thankfully Klinger includes the most important of them in, uh, 
in this uh, anthology I'm working off of. Um, one of his uncles uh, killed himself, for instance, as well. Um, and he starts to really realize or understand that he's descended from this Marsh uh, family. Quote, was Obadad Marsh my own great-great-grandfather? Who or what then was my great-great-grandmother? But perhaps this was all madness. Those whitish gold ornaments might easily have been brought from some insmal sailor by the father of my great-grandmother, whoever he was. Um, and that look in the staring-eyed faces of my grandmother and the self-slain uncle might be sheer fancy on my part, sheer fancy bolstered up by the insmal shadow which had so darkly colored my imagination. But why had my uncle killed himself after an ancestral quest in New England? Um, so... It takes him like years to fully internalize the meaning of all this and to come to some kind of conclusion about it. And it comes to him, he, his health begins to decline, he begins to change, he begins to take on aspects of the Innsmouth look. Um, of course, it happens slow, and he takes it first to be just uh, like a disease or uh, kind of a psychological torment going on in his mind, but we, we know what it is. We know it's is beginning to change. Um, now what's really nice at the end here is then he starts to have a dream. He has a dream in which the final pieces of the puzzle are sort of pieced together. Because the one aspect of it that we really can't know about is this great, great grandmother. This wife, this hidden wife that no one saw of Obadad Marsh. And he ends up, it takes a dream to kind of piece that together. So he sees her in a dream. Quote, one night I had a frightful dream in which I met my grandmother under the sea. She lived in a phosphorescent palace of many terraces with gardens of strange leprous corals and grotesque brachiate effervescence and welcomed me with a warmth that might have been sardonic. She had changed as those who take to water change and told me she had never died. Instead, she had gone to a spot her dead son had learned about and had leaped to a realm whose wonders destined for him as well he had spurred with a smoking pistol. This was to be my realm tomb if I could not escape it. I would never die, but I would live with all those who had lived since before man ever walked the earth. I met also that which had been her grandmother. For 80,000 years, Pithaya Isla had lived in Yithnale, and thither she had gone back after Obadad Marsh was dead. Yithnale was not destroyed when the upper earthmen shot death into the sea. It was hurt, but not destroyed. The deep ones could never be destroyed, even though the Palagonian magic of the forgotten old ones might sometimes check them. For the present, they would rest. But someday, if they remembered, they would rise again for their the tribute great Cthulhu craved. End quote. And there's more to the dream, but it connects in some ways to the mythology. I think this carries on the tradition we started seeing in The Whisper and Darkness of how Lovecraft is really much more consciously trying to piece these mythologies together. So this story really kind of connects Call of Cthulhu and Dagon. Um, together into into kind of one aspect of the mythology, right? That these are somehow like the servants of, of Cthulhu, almost. And of course, in the call of Cthulhu, the, the only servants he has are these human cultists. This is adding a whole other level to them. Um, so then the question becomes, and we're really at the end of the story here, this question becomes, you know, should he kill himself? And he thinks about it, but he eventually decides not to, and he embraces his um, 
family history mm-hmm. and he embraces his heritage and he concludes we shall swim out to that brooding roof in this reef in the sea and dive down through black abysses to cyclopean and many colored yithnale and in that layer of the deep ones we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever and that's it that's the end of uh the shadow over innsmouth so as i said chapters four and five are you know, they, they don't add too much to what I find more interesting about the story, which is the, the mythology and the history of this town and the setting of the town. Um, but it's it does have some really great stuff in it. Like the, the chase is very memorable. It's some of the most, I think, memorable things that Lovecraft actually ever wrote. Uh, it's much more well done than the flight out of the City of the Elder Things in, at the Mountains of Madness. Um, you know because you really feel the terror and you feel the creep um you know as you know you're in a strange town people start jiggling at your door it's it's disconcerting to say the least and uh, given everything he's kind of heard about and learned in his few hours there it makes it all more terrifying and then you get this find this realization that they're they are out to get you in some way and this you know, effort to flee. And then when you see what's really chasing you, it's really well done. Um, chapter five is really kind of an epilogue to this, this story, right? It could have just ended there. And he says, well, then I called the police and we destroyed the town, right? That's sort of how the lurking fear ends. It's, it's, it's as if the, at the end of the lurking fear, our narrator figures out he's, you know, connected to that Martens family, which of course most readers assume and, and it's highly suggested that he already sort of knew that when he was started investigating this, uh, that mansion at Tempest Hill and all that. Go back and, and reread The Lurking Fear if, if that just, just sounds like, uh, if that sounds all new, new to you. Or I did a whole episode, a couple episodes on The Lurking Fear quite a while ago. Um, but it'd be like if at the end of the story we have a whole chapter in which our narrator figures out that oh, actually he's one of these or he's related to to these um, these chuds <laughs> living under Tempest Mountain. Um, and then the the choice at the end, you know, the he doesn't take the choice that the the character like an Arthur German takes. There's a character who kills himself, right? We, you know, that's often the solution to this problem when you are exposed with this horrible family heritage that you can't escape. The only solution is to kill yourself. Um, he doesn't choose to do that. Instead, he totally embraces it. And I think that's, it's really well done. The, the psychology of it, the how he builds piece by piece to this realization combined with his own physical decline and then finally a dream that that awakens him to the full truth um and then you know we learn that the cover-up wasn't complete you can move the people of Innsmouth, you can destroy the town but really what matters is that what's under the reef right the civilization that that's existed under the reef of these immortal deep ones so i don't know I guess that's all I want to say about uh, the Shadow of Innsmouth. I think it's a really important story. I think as a setting, Innsmouth is it's perhaps the most interesting of any of the cities that Lovecraft really explores, because in a way it's the most modern, it's the most distinctive, it's it's the most connected to the sea. All his New England towns are connected to the sea, but this one is more than any other. Um, its transformation is tied to the sea, and particularly the South Pacific and these merchant communities. 
We see a bit of that, of course, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward and uh, the horror Red Hook. It does the same sort of thing, but it's so rich here. Uh, so much of the story is just building up this mythology of the town and its history. And I really like it. I really love it. Um, uh, you know, the main criticism of this is that this is like a late Lovecraft story in which he kind of reverts back to these racist tropes about miscegenation mis mis and and heredity and, and all these kinds of things he was obsessed with when he was younger. To some degree, that's true, but um, yeah, I, I think it still works really well. Um, and I actually think it's not so much about race explicitly as about like decline and isolation. And this way, it, it reminds me a lot of Dunwich. I, I think this contrast, this a parallel between Dunwich and Innsmouth is interesting. One being connected, one being... Uh, they're both isolated, but they're isolated for different reasons. And they have very different histories, but they both become crucibles for vernacular traditions to, to emerge. Um, and this is one of the darker ones. This, this vernacular tradition is about as dark as it gets. Uh, with human sacrifices and um, uh, a lot of other strange stuff going on. Anyways, I guess that's it. So, um, so coming up next, we'll we'll jump to some of the revisions that uh, Lovecraft wrote around this time of his uh, career. I think there's five stories or six, maybe. Uh, I forgot exactly how many. Uh, certainly, we're going to start with the. The, the bishop uh, revisions, starting with the Curse of Yig, then looking at um, uh, the Mound, probably a couple episodes on the Mound just because it's so long, and then Medusa's uh, Coil, which really is a, a pretty profoundly racist title. That's a better example of a really, really racist story Lovecraft wrote at the time. Better example than Shadow of the Mouth. Both of those stories are largely Lovecraft's work, so we're going to want to take our time and, and, and study them you know, with some care. And then there'll be a few more revisions after that. Um, so um, there's still a few more stories that Lovecraft published under his name for, in fact, but it's gonna, we're not going to get to them for a couple months because I am going to return to the letters in a little bit um, after I'm done with some of the revisions. So um, we'll set this aside and, and um, you know, get back to these other late Lovecraft stories in, you know, when we get to them. Um, but for now, let me know if you have any thoughts about The Shadow Over Innsmouth, uh, anything I forgot, uh, anything I, I missed. I'm sure there's a lot of details that are precious to you that, that I skipped over. Sorry about that, but that's why you're here to um, fill me in and keep me... Uh, Keep me informed of what I'm miss missing and uh, and skipping over too casually. So anyways, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, you could also leave a review on iTunes. That would really help me out. Or you can catch me on Twitter, uh, where I spend much of every day. So thanks, as always, for listening, and I will see you next time. Thank the world.